Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Good morning, Crosswalk. Great to see all of you. My name's Jeff. Let's uh, take a moment now while I'm organizing things to open up our Bibles to Romans 5. Pastor Dan said a little bit earlier, feel free to use your phones. If you have a Bible app, you can open it up to Romans chapter 5. If you've got your Bible with you, which you always hope you do, you can use that. Also, reach inside your program and pull out this white half sheet. It'll help you in following along in the message today. Before I get started today, I just want to reveal something. I'm a little annoyed this morning. Because I got this yesterday. South Mountain District News, top article, construction begins on Levine's first hospital. I mean, really? Really? I mean, look at that x-ray back there, that amazing hospital bed. Levine's first hospital? We got that nailed down already. Levine's second hospital. We are a hospital for sinners, and that is what we're about, and that is what Paul is going to be talking about this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open, I want to show you a couple of pictures this morning. How many of you have ever repurposed something? Never taken something that was old and had originally been used for one purpose, and then you took it and you refurbished it and got it to be used for another something? Say, For example, an old tape measure that was frayed and you really didn't want to use it to measure stuff like your waist anymore. And so instead of doing that, you turn it into a lovely bracelet. Or another thing that you could potentially repurpose is that that old window frame that is outside in your Levine barn somewhere that the horses have been kicking around for a while. And you can turn that into a lovely picture frame for your babies. And of course, when the babies get older, at least in my experience, what what my children did, they're going to start mangling things. Small children are a little bit like puppies. And so you may find that your spoons in your drawer start to look like that. They're, They're all bent. Now, that is not the end of your spoons. They can become beautiful tea candle holders. And all you have to do is mount them on a lovely board from your barn, and they are repurposed into tea candle holders. My second to favorite one, though, is this one. Grandma's suitcase that you have stored. She gave this to you. This is the suitcase that she used when she was going on flights everywhere. And that old stool that you're not sure what to do with, you just take some super glue, take grandma's suitcase, put it on top, And you have a beautiful side table for your living room. Just paint it all black or whatever color works with your living room decor. But that is not my favorite one. My final and favorite one is, I was thinking, what? I've got all these old LPs, these old records. My my old Gordon Lightfoot collection, my, my Seals and Crofts. A lot of you people are going, what? Seals and who? But I've got all these old, old records. What, what could I possibly use those for? Well, how about a cake platter? Isn't that lovely? I love that. Well, it's pretty 
easy sometimes to see, maybe a little challenging, but pretty easy to see how you can take an object and repurpose that. But how do you repurpose something that's more on the emotional side? How do you take pain, and that's the title of our message today, how do you take pain and repurpose pain in your life? How can that be done? And, and maybe at a deeper level, why should we think about repurposing the pain that we have in our lives? And I want to I talk about that because I think a lot of times, one of the reasons that it doesn't even cross our mind that our pain might one day serve a different and greater purpose than just being agony for us and just being something that we want to avoid and get away from, that, that in reality it could be something that could serve a very great purpose, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of people that God puts around us. You know, I think a lot of times one of the reasons we don't think about repurposing pain is because in pain, we're typically just wanting the world to go away. We want to hunker down. We want to get in our foxhole, cover ourselves, and and just push everybody away. Often when we're in pain, we want to be isolated. We We don't want our pain to affect others, especially those of us who are guys. We will do everything that we can to hide our pain from others. And then I go one level deeper in my own experience. Maybe some of you have experienced this too. Not only that, when I'm deeply in pain, I kind of tend to get in that foxhole mentality and, and hide from the world. But if the pain is deep enough, sometimes if the pain, pain is sudden enough, and often if the pain is long enough, that lasts long enough, Questions begin to form in my mind, theological questions, right? Is God the one bringing this pain into my life? Is, is God angry with me? And one of the reasons why I, this even supports the idea of the, the foxhole is if it goes on long enough and if it's deep enough or if it's surprising and shocking enough, I may even begin to feel that God is at war with me. And of course, I'm going to get into my foxhole because God is firing lightning bolts at me. At least that's the way I begin to feel. God is at war with me and he's punishing me. I used to have a, a friend who would sign all of his emails with this three-word signature, in God's grip. And I often think when I'm going through pain and suffering in my life that I too am in God's grip. And God's grip looks like this. Ah, he's got his hands around my throat, gripping it, choking me. And maybe you felt like you're in God's grip that way at times too. And so that's what we want to talk about because guess what? That's not that feeling that we have God's hands around our our throats. We're not alone. In fact, many people who even wrote parts of the Bible talk about that feeling that God's hands are around their throat. Take a look. We're not sure that David wrote Psalm 74, but we do know that he wrote Psalm 73. So the assumption is that this is King David. And look at what he says. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Will you underline that word rejected? You ever felt that way? That God has turned his back on you? 
that God is giving you the silent treatment? That even though you keep praying to him, God, I don't think you're listening, God. I think you're so ticked at me, God, that no, no matter what I would say to you at this point, you've just flat out rejected me and you're not going to listen to my cries for help. Why have you rejected us forever? David goes on. Why does your anger smolder? You know what smolder is. It is it's, it's like a, a, a campfire that has not been properly put out. It's still hot and burning and smoking. Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pastor? God, aren't we your sheep? And aren't you our, our shepherd? Why is this stuff happening in my life? How, how come your anger is burning against us? I don't know what kind of pain you have in your life, but this is what I am sure of. Just as in the days of the Apostle Paul, whom we'll be studying in a moment, and in the days of King David, we live in a world where everyone has to deal with pain. And, and therefore... Because we live in that world where no one escapes pain and where pain can sometimes be all three of what I just mentioned, it can come on suddenly. It can be severe. And it can sometimes last a long time. We're going to be asking these kinds of questions from time to time. Why? Have you rejected me? Is your anger smoldering Against me, and we're going to feel like God has got us in His grip, all right. His hands right around our throat. We're going to feel like God is at war with us. So I want you to write that down. That's your first feeling. At times, my pain makes me feel God is at war with me. Let me tell you a little bit before we dive into our official text of the day from Romans chapter 5, what we're really studying. I want to give you a little bit of background. Did you know that the book of Romans is different from many of the other New Testament letters that the Apostle Paul wrote? A lot of people don't recognize that this, this letter has a different character, and it's for a reason. Most of the, uh, the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote to churches whom he had already visited. In fact, most of them, he had established those churches as a missionary in the first place, and he was the spiritual father of the people that he was writing to in these letters. They knew him well, he knew them well, and so he, they had this very close trusting relationship where he could address things that he needed to address with them. And often these letters were written because after Paul established the church, then he would go on, leave them, and establish another church in another church. And this was his way of reaching back to the people whom he loved and whom he had set up as a church to correct things that inevitably went wrong after he left. False teachers would come in or the people would drift from their faith. And so he would write back to them to try to get them to correct in love, and to remind them to keep their hearts and minds focused on Christ and the cross and the empty tomb. Romans is not like that. If you know the history of this book, you, you know that Paul wrote this from one of those cities that he had evangelized, the city of Corinth. And he was writing a letter ahead to the people of Rome. He had never yet visited Rome when he wrote this letter. 
And while if you look at the end of the book, Romans chapter 16, you can find there that he knew a lot of people because probably some of them had come from these churches in Asia Minor and Greece that he had established and they had, they had moved to Rome or maybe some of them were from Jerusalem where Paul had started out or Antioch. He knew some of them, but many of them he didn't know. And so this, this letter really has a different character because he's not quite as much able to speak to them as a spiritual father. And he has a different purpose in writing this letter. This letter is not about correcting errors that the people were falling into. This letter is about Paul saying, man, my dream, my fondest dream is to come and share Jesus Christ with you, to share the good news of what he has done for us. And I, I am writing this to let you know, prepare yourselves because I, I will, I'm praying that God will find a way for me to get there and visit you. And he writes this letter and it's complex for two reasons. One is, not knowing the people well, he wants to make sure they have all the facts about the Christian faith. So Romans, if you've ever wondered what would a 201 class have looked like in the first century, read the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's 101 and 201 class. It is the Apostle Paul's confirmation class in which he lays out all the details of the Christian faith for the Romans to say, when I come, here's the Christian faith that I want to talk to you about, and I'm introducing it to you in this letter. But that wasn't the only thing that made writing this letter complicated for Paul. When Paul was writing this, he had to think of a lot of different groups of people because society in Rome was far from homogenous far from homogenous. In fact, they had a very strict class system in Rome, as did many ancient societies. Much stricter than what we might look around today and say, well, yeah, we have an upper class, a middle class, and a, and a, and a lower class in, in the United States. This, this was almost like a caste system in ancient Rome. You had the patricians at the very top, super wealthy, Homes built up on the side of the hills in Rome. And their experience of life was, was filled with a lot of ease, a lot of partying. Their, their big thing, the, the people that in Rome talked about, they would talk about throwing these lavish parties and being able to import food from all the far reaches of the empire and, and bring it and have their friends over. Now you can imagine that that was one experience of Rome, and there weren't that many patricians. Also, alongside of the patricians, you had the equestrians. That was the next class down from the patricians. And the equestrians were the successful people, the up-and-comers. In fact, you probably recognize how they got their name. Anybody here a Latin scholar and know what the word equus means? Horse. And so these were the people that were wealthy and successful enough that they didn't have to walk. They had transportation. And so the citizens of Rome would go, oh, look at that guy's ride, huh? <laughs> look at what he's driving. Look at what she's driving. Because they had enough wealth and enough success. And the equestrians were the people that made the empire hum. 
They were generally well-educated. They had money to send their kids to the best colleges and schools. And life for them was pretty upper middle class. But then you had the plebeians. The plebeians were by far the vast majority of Roman citizenry. And about only thing the plebeian could say was to his advantage was that he had official citizenship as a member of the Roman Empire. He was a Roman. But otherwise, life for the masses in Rome was tough, very tough. It was hand-to-mouth existence. And these, this was the rabble that the emperor always had to keep a thought toward and be politically astute about because it was a massive crowd of people. In fact, again, Latin scholars, you may have heard this in college, one of the things that the emperors were fond of doing, there's a a three-word phrase for it, panem et circenses. Anybody remember from college what panem et circenses is? Bread and circuses the emperors would constantly make sure that the people had their tummies full and that there were plenty of circuses and other types of entertainments and gladiatorial fights and battles going on in the Colosseum. Why? Because that pacified the masses. The fourth class and probably the majority class in Rome were not free people at all but slaves. And interestingly enough, the slaves were often people who came from the conquered territories of of the Roman Empire or people who even sold themselves into slavery so they could move to Rome because they thought anything has to be better than this life I'm living now out here in the boondocks. And so they would indenture themselves to be slaves for a while. And their life, as you can imagine, was the toughest of all. And yet, sometimes slaves could be relatively successful, even more successful on occasion than the hoi polloi, the the crowds, the plebeians. Now, here's why I'm laying all this out. When Paul writes this letter to the Romans, he has to keep all these different groups of people in mind because in this Christian congregation, which really was probably more than one church. It was probably a small set of house churches in Rome that maybe gathered together occasionally, but chiefly met in homes in Rome. There were people of all those classes in this church. The church, as it is today, is a place to gather people from from all different parts of society, every ethnicity. In fact, many of the people in this Christian church were not even Romans. As I said before, they were people who had emigrated from from Asia Minor, Greece, perhaps as far away as the eastern parts of the empire. And Paul is trying to think about all the different kinds of pain that could be going on in all these different people's lives. If you were a patrician, for example, you might think, wow, life is very good. But guess what? Patricians were the one class of people that could dream of being emperor one day. Sounds great until you realize that Nero, who was the emperor, killed his own mother, had her assassinated 
because he thought she aspired to take his seat as emperor. You, you could have a very wonderful life, but if they thought you were playing politics, and you wouldn't know what was coming because it would be done very surreptitiously, and all of a sudden you would just be laying dead in the street and it would look like you had fallen over. If you were, if you were in the, the equestrian class, you're probably a lot like a lot of American lives. Your pain had to do with rushing and scurrying and constantly being busy and never being able to have downtime because with your education and your expertise and your skills, you and there were expectations. I mean, you got to have enough so you can send your kids to the best schools and all this stuff. And that created a lot of pain. Paul had to think about that. Paul had to think about the plebeians living hand to mouth not knowing where their next meal was going to come from. Paul had to think about the slaves. In fact, if you read in Paul's letters, he talks both to masters and to slaves. And he had to think about all their pain. There was one other class Paul had to think about. Paul had to think about the legionnaires, the soldiers who went out to maintain the strength of the Roman Empire. And he had to think about all of them being part of this congregation and how they too probably at times felt like God was at war with them because of their sins, because of their guilt and shame. And so here's how Paul begins Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we, all of us, patricians, equestrians, plebeians, slaves, freemen, soldiers, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Peace. We have circled that word. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. We have entry, he says, through this door named faith into this grace in which we now stand And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul's saying, we've been justified. I want you to circle that word and I want you to write right above it. I want you to write the word declared not guilty. Because that's what that word means. In God's court, despite the fact that we are sinners because of Christ, everyone in this room is declared not guilty in his sight. You are no longer guilty of your sin. Isn't that wonderful? You are innocent in God's sight. And now because you are innocent, there's no punishment coming. Who punishes a person who has been publicly declared innocent? You wouldn't do that. And that's what Paul is saying. God is not at war with you. God is at peace with you. He's not going to punish you. And that's all because of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done through his death and resurrection. And by faith in him, he says, we have entry into grace in which we now stand. I love that phrase. This last week, Julie and I went out into our, our backyard. And um, because it, it really is just desert landscaping out there and rocks and thorns and whatnot in our backyard, we have two pair of flip-flops. And we don't have... Uh, uh, a fence to keep animals out. Sometimes javelina wander through there, coyotes wander through there, neighborhood dogs wander through our backyard. And this week we went out the back door 
intending to do a few little things in the backyard. And we have some flip-flops sitting out on the porch to protect our feet from the thorns and the rocks. And one of the neighborhood dogs, we assume, took off with one of her flip-flops and one of my flip-flops. And of course, the same feet. So we can't even wear like one of one and one of the other. But do you you know what it's like to walk in our desert with no flip-flops? Nothing on your feet? It's like... "Ah, ah, 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 ah." That is what it is, even walking out into our backyard. What Paul is saying here is God has given you some grace flip-flops. And when you go through life, those grace flip-flops are going to protect you from the thorns and thistles that naturally come about because of living as a fallen person in a fallen world, all because of sin. You now stand in God's grace boots. And and you always have those grace boots to put on. And when life comes at you and wants to throw pain and suffering at you, Paul says, just remember, what are you doing walking around out here barefoot? Go back to Jesus. And to the Romans, he would have said, put your grace sandals on. And walk around constantly knowing that you are walking in the undeserved love and forgiveness and grace. You are, in other words, in God's grip. And God's grip looks nothing like this around your throat. God's grip is the grip of a loving dad walking with you. You are in the grip of grace. And I I love just thinking about that, that, that despite the fact that life is very tough and can be tragic and difficult at times. Paul says, never, ever, ever forget, you live in your grace boots. Put those grace sandals on and live in the grip of grace. So the truth is, through Jesus, God is not at war with you. God is at peace with you. Write that down as your second fill-in. Now, here's what I love. This passage from Romans chapter 5 is like a stepped process. And so Paul goes on and he says, Now that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is not punishing you because God is at peace with you, he does not have his hands around your throat, but he extends his hand and says, Here, put your hand in mine. You're in the grip of God's grace. That totally redefines what your suffering is. And what your pain means. And Paul just shares. It's totally redefined what my pain has meant. Paul understood pain. He had been through a lot of pain in his life. Since he became a Christian, his life was filled with shipwrecks, beatings, people throwing stones at him. Not just verbal stones, but literal stones trying to kill him. But look at how he sees all of this. Read Verse 3 with me, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our pain has been totally redefined, Paul says. And our pain now produces good things. Our pain is our gain. 
because of what Jesus has done for us. And how does pain help us gain? What what does Paul have to say about that? Now that we are in the grip of grace, what good things does pain do? Well, first of all, my pain is my gain because God uses pain to teach me perseverance. Now, perseverance is my favorite word in the dictionary. In my dictionary, my Webster's Dictionary at home, I have the word perseverance circled and starred. And I I clipped an old picture of myself and I put myself next to that picture of perseverance, not because I am a picture of perseverance, but because I aspire to be a picture of perseverance. I think perseverance is one of the most awesome things in the world. And all it means is stick-to-itiveness, that you don't give up, that you never say die. You know, for example, that God talks about how persevering he is in his love toward you, right? Two weeks ago, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in that definition of what, God, what, what love is and what love isn't, we talked about that, that, that description as a beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ and his love for us. You remember how it ends? The very last phrase, love never fails. Love never fails. And that is certainly true of God. God's love for you, for me, never fails. It is persevering love. And God wants to develop in your heart a persevering love. And so he's going he's gonna to stretch you and test you because he knows that to develop a persevering love, you need to be worked out and stretched and tested. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, you know what he's going to do to stretch and test you? Put a lot of unlovely people around you and say, love them anyway. There are going to be times where you're going to think, God is at war with me. He doesn't love me anymore. But he still says to you, despite your belief in lies, because he does love you, and he's not at war with you, he's at peace with you, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Develop an unfailing love. And God will put you in positions to test so that you grow stronger and develop perseverance. The second thing Paul says here in this beautiful chain, that when we develop perseverance, we also develop character. God wants you, as you go through life, to look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to develop in the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and so on. And so he puts us sometimes in painful situations so that we can develop in our sanctification, in our, in our looking more and more like Jesus so that our character grows. We become people of, of spiritual substance and good character. You see, so often in our life, We just hope and pray that God is interested most of all in our happiness. And and I'm not here to tell you that God is not interested in your happiness. He certainly is. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, the most well-known sermon he preached, begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit and, and all those blesseds that cause us to name it Beatitudes. Another translation for that word blessed are is happy are. 
Jesus teaches us how to be happy, but Jesus is not primarily interested in our happiness. He is primarily interested in our character and therefore in our holiness. And that is a key change of attitude, a key change of perspective that all of us as children of God need to make. It's, it's, it's not crazy. It's not unusual. Parents, think about it. Are you sometimes willing to make your children a little bit unhappy in order to grow them into the young man or young woman you want them to be? To mold their character so that they grow up and become people of character in the world? Well, if you as human parents are willing to introduce a little bit of unhappiness into their lives at times so that they develop character, why would our Heavenly Father not at times also do the same thing so that we develop a Christ-like character? And the final thing he says is, my pain is my gain because God uses pain to establish that he is my hope. He is my hope. This last January, February, I, I went through this cold flu thing. And um, I think many of us went through that. I, I started right after New Year's. And at first my thought was, you know, um, work out, take my vitamins. I think I'm, my body's in pretty good shape. I think it will be able to, God has designed our bodies in a wonderful way. I'm just going to let my own body fight this off. And I thought my answer to my cold and flu symptoms was me. And then about three and a half, four weeks in, I realized, nope, Jeff, you're not the answer. Your wonderful body is not fighting this thing off. And so secondarily, then I thought, well, now my plan is I've got an awesome doctor and I truly do have an awesome doctor. I went to him and I said, could you give me some drugs? Because this thing is not going away. And he gave me some antibiotics and I started to, to get a little bit better, but it still didn't go away. So now I'm five or six weeks into having these cold and flu symptoms and, and just being wiped and tired and coughing and sneezing, and it's horrible. Many of you experienced it. And one day I'm sitting at devotion and reading about the healer. And I thought to myself, hey, you know, maybe you should pray about this. Me, a pastor, child of God, six, seven weeks into the flu, finally arriving at the conclusion that maybe I need to get God involved in this problem. Have any of you ever been there? Thought, I'm the answer first. Then thought, I've got human friends who are the answer. And then finally came to the conclusion that you could talk to God about it and ask for his help. See, I think that's more common than we might like to admit but one of the things that our suffering does is it strips all that stuff away. It's like, it's like paint stripper for the soul. It, it just, you put that chemical on that old furniture and that paint, that just, it just blisters up and it falls off and then you can beautifully refinish that old chair or table. That's what pain and suffering does for us. It just, it just takes us back down to the basics where we can only look to God and see him purely as our one true hope. You see, when we, when we look at pain this way, what we're really doing, I think, I think the soldiers, the legionnaires that Paul was, was talking to, I think they got this. I really do. 
Because they would return from those campaigns out in the far-flung parts of the, of the empire of Gaul, and, and some of them would be missing hands, and some of them would be missing a leg, and some of them would have a, a puncture scar in their belly from an arrow or a spear that went through it. And the Roman legionnaires were known to glory in their scars, to be proud of the, of the painful things that they had gone through for the empire. These were glorious scars. And that's what Paul is saying, that when we go through pain, we develop glorious scars, not to our glory, but to the glory of God, that ultimately develop some really wonderful things in us, perseverance and character and the ability to go first to God and make him our hope in life. Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says, you see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, our hope is not in us. We had to realize that. We were powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Will you circle that word ungodly? See, this is where we have to get. This is what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That when we come to God, we come empty-handed and go, God, I got nothing for you. I, I, I have no righteousness of my own, no beauty of my own. I'm ungodly. And Paul points out something shocking about Jesus. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Have you ever wondered if God could still love you as you are sitting here today? Well, Christ died for you while you are still a sinner. Jesus came to serve ungodly people like you and me through his pain. And that's what he does. He continues to serve us. Flip your page over. Now Paul goes on and he's, he's still building. So let me just take you back through this. He said, you're not at war with God. You're at peace with him. And then he, he said... The, the real thing is that redefines what our suffering is about. And you should understand that God loves you even when you are ungodly, even when you are a sinner. He loves you so much that he, that he died for you while you were still a sinner. Most of you, Paul says, wouldn't die for someone who's wicked, evil, and ungodly. Most of you wouldn't die for someone you, you didn't know. But Jesus died for you while you were still very undeserving to have him do that. Now he goes on and he builds it one more step and he says, since we've now been justified by his blood, remember, justified means declared innocent by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? One of my favorite things about the Olympics is not the competition. One of my favorite things about the Olympics is those little story bi biography vignettes that they do. Two weeks ago, I went home after church on Sunday afternoon, 
and I turned on the Olympics, and they had one of those biographical vignettes about a young lady named Jessica Long. I don't know if any of you saw that one, but if you did, you saw something wonderful. It's still on the internet. It's worth watching. Jessica Long was not there for the Olympics. She's a a Paralympian. And the reason Jessica was being featured in this vignette was that Jessica had been adopted by American parents. She's an American Paralympic athlete. She had been adopted from Russia. And she had come from an orphanage in Russia, some 1,700 miles outside of Moscow. And in this story, you got, to, you got to see Jessica go back to that orphanage that she had been adopted from. And she just marvels, like, how did my mom and dad find me all the way out here in the middle of nowhere, halfway across the, the world? They went to all these lengths to see to it that I would be adopted into their family. And she was just struck by the love of her parents to do that. Remind you of anyone? Someone who went to all these lengths, came down from heaven to earth so that you could be adopted into God's family? You know what my favorite part of that little vignette was, though? It wasn't the part in the in the orphanage. It was the part where they, they interviewed her American mom and dad, and they told the story of what happens after the adoption. You see, Jessica was born without key bones in her la- lower legs and ankles. And after they brought her home, they realized that they would have to make the agonizing decision to amputate her two lower legs, which is why she's now a Paralympic swimming athlete. And as it tells the story of all the love and the training that they poured into little Jessica after they adopted her, you start to get a sense of what Paul is talking about here in this passage where he says, look, if Jesus would die for you when you were ungodly, And when you were still a sinner so that you could be adopted and call the Heavenly Father Dad? Who could think that 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 dad could ever be your enemy? He loves you. And in the same way that those two American adoptive parents put all that love and effort into taking care of little Jessica as she grew up with all of these issues and and problems and, and taught her, look, don't let this hold you back. You could even be, well, maybe even an Olympic athlete one day. And they they boosted her up. That's what our Heavenly Father does for us. You see what Paul is saying here? If, If we've now been justified, we're innocent, we're adopted into God's family by the blood of Jesus Christ, how much... Are we going to now be saved? He's going to take care of us. We'll be saved from God's wrath through him. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more now being his children, having been reconciled, shall we be saved in this life? Jesus' ultimate goal is to save us for time and eternity. Running out of time, so I'm just going to run through these last little things quickly. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you you notice that Paul says boast twice? 
here at the end. And he said it at the very beginning of Romans chapter 5. You see, what Paul is saying is that now when I look at my pain, it takes on a whole different meaning for me. It's a whole different purpose. I realize, Paul says, that my pain has made me part of a tribe. And I don't know if you know that, but your pain has made you part of a tribe. Last night as I preached this message, one of the ladies came up after, after the service and she said, you know, Pastor, while you were preaching, I was thinking about that time uh, two years ago when we lost our home in the economic downturn and how painful and agonizing that was. But you know what? Now, now I'm, I'm, I've been able to help others who've lost their home and help them work through their misery over losing their cherished home. I understand them. And, and isn't that true? Whatever your pain is, you sort of become part of a tribe of people who go through that similar thing and that you speak their language, you understand them better, and they understand you better. And, and you, you have a place now where you can serve people in a way. I, in my late 30s, I went through a massive clinical depression. I can tell you, I, I now feel part of the tribe of people who have gone through a clinical depression. We speak each other's language. We understand each other. And I did not understand it before in the least. I always thought to myself very arrogantly, why don't these people just pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and get on with life? And I realized that God sometimes sends things where you can't pick yourself up. And that's intentional because he wants to be our one and only hope. But I can so much more easily minister now to someone who's going through depression because I'm part of the tribe. So here's my question to you. Where's your agony? Where's your pain? And what tribe does that make you a member of? And it's important for you to identify that because where your agony is, where your misery is, where your pain is, is where your tribe is. And it's also where you can serve best. It's where your ministry is. And so look at pain and you can repurpose it. You can turn a suitcase and a stool into a completely different thing. You can turn a record album into a cake platter by looking at your agony and turning it into your ministry. I repurpose pain when my agony becomes my ministry. That's how you boast. And you tell others what God has done for you. That's what Paul means here when he says, I boast. I tell others what God has done with me because we're part of the same tribe. David did that. O Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trusted you, O Lord, from childhood. Yes, you have been with me from birth, from my mother's womb. You have cared for me. No wonder I am always praising you. Will you underline these next words? My life is an example to many. Not, not, David's not saying, hey, I get to be an example. My life is an example of God's grace and power. It's an example to many because you have been my strength and protection. That is why I can never stop praising you. I declare your glory all day long.
So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, just go online to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at 9 and 11 a.m. at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue Baseline. Visit our website for directions. And now, back to some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. So we're at the end of this series. And here's what I want you to go home with today. Do you wonder whether you're becoming more spiritually resilient? We've got the whole acronym now down there at the bottom of the page. The proof that you're truly becoming resilient is when you, like Paul, begin to focus outside of yourself on others. And you do that by repurposing pain, by taking your agony and letting it help you identify your tribe and especially letting it help determine your ministry. Let your agony become your ministry.